Lord, we come before the table today to acknowledge the work that Christ has done to save us. And in that acknowledgement, and as we each Lord's Day gather here to say that You are our salvation and our strength. And Lord, when You save a soul, You radically change us. We know that that change isn't momentary. We have far to go, and yet there's a transformation that takes place. We become new creatures. Lord, we thank You for that revelation. I pray that You would teach us now how to respond to the Gospel that has saved us and to continue to help us to conform to Your design. We praise You for this time together. Pray that it would be well invested as believers, that it would contribute to our sanctification. I pray in behalf particularly for those who may find great struggle with this discussion today, with this passage of Scripture. I pray that You'd give comfort, direction, wisdom, and assurance in the forgiveness and the grace that is in Christ. For those who know not Christ as Savior, we may speak as if insane in these next few moments. But I pray that what appears crazy will be seen as life and strength and hope. I ask that you'd open eyes to the truth of the gospel of Christ. And as we eventually come to the table, I pray that here we will commune with him in fidelity and trust and rejoicing. We pray this in asking that you would guide and illumine the Scriptures to our understanding. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. The prevailing view of the human body in our culture is controlled by the theory of evolution. Naturally then, our culture's view of sexuality is also informed by evolutionary assumptions. What is a man? What is a woman? And what qualifies as legitimate sexual expression? The average unbeliever in our society answers these questions with the assumption that humanity is ever-evolving. Indeed, society will grow more and more enlightened concerning these matters. And so the prevailing worldview around us looks inward and it looks forward to understand human sexuality, the human body. In stark contrast, born-again, spirit-indwelt believers united by faith to Christ look upward to our Creator. And we look back in time to His creative design. And this puts us at fundamental odds with our world whenever we address sexual ethics and identity. We're just looking at things from very different perspectives. Brothers and sisters, let me say this, it has always been this way. Always. From the moment that the gospel began to spread to the Gentiles, the church has always been on the outside on this matter. We look back in time to the creative design of our Maker, and then we look forward from there as those redeemed by the saving sacrifice of our Savior. We tether sexual ethics to the Genesis record of beginnings, where we read Genesis 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. This is a very physical statement. 
God physically made man and woman. And God saw that everything that he had made, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God's good design with respect to male and female is distilled in Genesis chapter 2, where we read, the man said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Here Adam speaking as God brings Eve to him. He sees a correspondence there and yet a distinction there and rejoices. And we find then this principle coming out of God's creative purposes. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. One man, one woman, designed to procreate, called by God to procreate, and called by God's good gift to be united to one another in marriage, a marriage marked by loving fidelity to one another. We could pick this picture apart a little bit, certainly. Uh, did they have blue eyes? I doubt it. But there is some discussion on that, on the idea of dominance and what might have been. Maybe their skin, I think, was mid-range and perhaps a little darker than here. Did Adam have long hair and put product in it? I doubt it. <laughs> and gray in the beard, I guarantee there was no gray in the beard. I've not found anything good about gray hair in my life. But... I do believe, as this picture at least gives an attempt, that they were the most beautiful couple that's ever walked the planet. There was no sin. There was no corrupt gene pool as we all evidence today. They were made with perfect symmetry, with no weakness including beauty and no effects of sin in that gene pool. Now that does not mean that their sexuality was tied simply to looks. But it means that what God did was perfectly good. This is what He made. As far short as a picture is, this is what He made and called very good. A male, female, one flesh, naked and unashamed, union in marriage, very good. Adam and Eve later determined that they could improve on God's gifts and counsel by choosing right and wrong for themselves. From that time forward and in that same vein, human beings have displayed a stiff-necked rejection of God's good design for human sexuality. What God did, we have twisted. This we know as we look up and as we look back. That rebellion had a major foothold in the Corinthian church. Chapter 5 and verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. He deals with that particular issue here. But there is sexuality, uh, sexual immorality among you. Chapter 6, verse 9 
6.9 Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who break God's design in this area, that becomes their characteristic way, will not enter into God's presence. Verse 11, we hold our breath. But here we hear, such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's who you were. But you have become someone else. Now that doesn't mean on the basis of their record that they would now earn the favor of God by their obedience. But it means rather that what Christ has done is to break the power of sin and to give you a new life. You have been washed by Christ. You have been sanctified by Christ. You have been justified by Christ. Not by your record of follow-through. But you need to become and to be now who you are becoming. Not who you once were. So verse 11, such were some of you. Well, in some sense, they still were. There's still problems here in the church. They're not acting like who they have become in Christ. But what is clear, as Paul writes to them here, and as he has in, in chapter 5 already, referencing sexual immorality, particularly homosexuality and adultery here, but covering the gamut, What's clear is that receiving the salvation that Christ offers the lost sinner results in a transformed sexual ethic. That's where it points us. That's what it begins to do in our lives. So chapter 5, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world, but now, verse 11, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother who is guilty of sexual immorality. Very clearly there, he is saying sexual, uh, sexual immorality is essentially a given with unbelievers. It's a given. It's understood. But when Christ rescues you, there's a transformation that begins. Now as we come to chapter 6 and verse 12, he picks up this theme in yet a different way, from a different angle, and it addresses some specific problems in the church. Verses 12 and 13, however, we encounter a rather tricky tangle of concepts. Most commentators believe that the key to understanding verses 12 and 13 is to recognize that Paul's really talking to these guys, and he is using some of the slogans that they were using to justify their sexual immorality. That was a practice in their lives. Here's the context that we understand, I think rightly so, is that first of all, there was a problem with a Christianized form of Greek dualism in the church that saw the body as evil and therefore of no consequence. 
The body's just going to be left behind as dust. And so what we do with it really doesn't matter. That seems to influence their theology. Secondly, and more pointedly and specifically here, there were male members of the assembly routinely visiting prostitutes. That's the people to whom he's writing. This probably took place in their setting in the context of dinner parties at pagan temples. Dinner parties at pagan temples would have been the rough equivalent of our restaurants. And in the practice of that situation, after dinner, there was a very specific kind of dessert. And that's what these men were involved in. And Paul writes to them, and he writes with, he's not messing around. This has got to end. This is not who you are. This is not who Christ saved you to be. So Paul confronts these church members for failing to be who they are becoming once again. And he says, first of all, we must think rightly about our bodies. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. If, you, if you're reading the ESV version, you'll note there are some quotation marks. All things are lawful for me. That's the key that indicates what's going on here, and that is that Paul is likely quoting their slogan. He is not speaking good theology here. He's quoting the slogan that they're using to excuse their sin. So I think the ESV is right here with those quotation marks. All things are lawful for me. That's what they were saying. It was probably connected to their sense, a twisted sense of their freedom in Christ and a wrong sense of dualism where the body really doesn't matter. And so all things are lawful for me. But Paul pushes back and says, yes, but not all things are helpful. You talk about an understatement. That kind of a relationship going on is not helpful to anyone. All things are lawful for, for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So his first point here is that our, our bodies are a gift from God for His honor, not for sexual immorality. This can dominate us. This can, this, uh, with this twisted doctrine that you're promoting of freedom in Christ to justify illicit activity, this can become a dominant issue in your life. It can control you. It will keep you from heaven ultimately. Verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. It seems again here that he's using one of their phrases, one of their slogans. Here the ESV puts the quotation marks at the word food. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. It probably should extend to the word other. And God will destroy both one and the other. That seems to be their phrase. So, food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food. God will destroy both one and the other. Therefore, what you eat, how you eat, how you use your body, ultimately doesn't matter. It's all just going to pass away. What matters is the spirit realm. That seems to be what they were saying. He pushes back in verse 13, the second half. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Again, our translation struggles here, but the body is not meant for sexual immorality should read, but the body is not meant for sexual immorality. There's a, a, a difference here that he's drawing out. 
adversative. So food, they're saying, food is meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other, so do what you want. He's saying, but I say to you, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In biblical context, what does that mean? In biblical context, what that means is that God did not give us bodies to use them for sexual activity outside the bonds of a one-man, one-woman covenant of lifelong fidelity in marriage. But they thought of sex like food for the stomach. No big deal. The Corinthians were saying, we live on a higher spiritual plane in Christ. The body is meaningless and soon will die. All bodily appetites are basically the same, so do with your body what you wish. It's no big deal. And Paul says, no, you're wrong. God did not give you bodies so you would break His creative design for sexual activity. Your bodies are the Lord's and you must use them for His honor and for His glory. Now here's the clincher, verse 14. And what Paul says is nothing short of revolutionary in the history of ethics. Verse 14, our bodies are innately honorable and will be raised to eternal perfection. God raised the Lord. That is, the Father resurrected Christ and will also raise or resurrect us up by His power. So the body is valuable to God. He made it. He will redeem it in the end. Our bodies are not earth suits that we just discard at death for a higher existence as disembodied spirits. No, it is not Christian teaching. Our bodies will be resurrected. Our bodies will be glorified. They matter. So Paul says, lose this thinking about the body as so much trash to be used as you wish. No, God purchased your body. He will raise it up in union with Christ's resurrection in the end. There is a plan in redemption. There is a purpose in redemption for your body. Start treating your body as if that was the case. You're plugged in to what your culture is saying. Body doesn't matter, so use it however you wish. Plug in to biblical sexuality. Your body does matter. It belongs to God. So what you do with your body matters. As much as it matters to your spirit. They're a package, and God's honor is at stake. Now I said revolutionary. Why do I say revolutionary? Some have noted this, some commentators have noted that this might be the first place in history that libertarian promiscuity is not countered by a call to asceticism, legalism, or utilitarianism. Now some of you are going, whoa, 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 put that one in reverse, what was that? <laughs> Hear it again, it sounds really complicated, but it isn't. Libertarianism, promiscuity, I can live however I want. I can live like a dog, sexually, I can do whatever I want, wherever I want, that view is usually countered by asceticism. That is, harm the body. Withhold 
desires from the body. Do whatever is necessary to bring the body under control through physical means. Or by legalism. Just some rule that we can keep that allows us to maintain. Or utilitarianism, that's to say, for instance, don't be involved in sexual morality because it causes a disease. So so there's just good reason for you not to do it. That type of thing. What Paul is saying is none of that. What Paul is saying is you, your body, is part of Christ's redemptive purpose. He is going to raise it from the dead and glorify it. It matters. And it matters how you use it. Paul now defends his instructions with a third line here. And that is that our bodies are united in salvation to Christ such that every form of sexual immorality is really infidelity to Him. This is what the Corinthian church was missing. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her, for it is written the two will become one flesh. Where's he looking here at verse 16? He's looking backward, isn't he? To the Genesis account, where we learn that the one flesh relationship is restricted to to heterosexual marriage. And more pointedly, the sex act is designed by God for deep, profound, and spiritual intimacy. When I'm united with Christ in his death and resurrection, I become a member of his body. So Paul is saying, if we take the body that is joined to Christ through salvation, and we use it to join bodies with the prostitute in a different sense, this is infidelity to God. Paul continues, some of you are rooted to your catchy slogans. That you are not rooted to God's revealed truth. So you go to a temple and enjoy a dinner party. You end the evening in the arms of a temple prostitute. And you think that's nothing. Get this straight. What you're doing is abhorrent. You are taking the body that Jesus purchased with His blood and you are uniting it in this way with a pagan. As numerous individuals have commented on this passage, there is no such thing as casual sex. It doesn't exist. There is a mystical union in that act. Sex taking place under the smile of God within marriage, or constitutes an act of infidelity to our Creator and Savior. That's the Christian ethic, and it obviously puts us very much at odds with our world. Verse 17, But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. This clinches that idea, joined, a word that points to a deep spiritual intimacy of union with Christ. When you truly put your trust in Christ as Lord and Savior, your spirit is joined forever to His. 
Obviously, we don't become one body with Christ in the same way that a man and woman share one flesh relationship. But the intimacy is no less real or profound. And it's even reflected in the one flesh relationship of a husband and wife. He images Christ's love for the church. In that relationship, she images the church's submission to Christ. And ideally, that relationship reflects a love and an intimacy that is only possible where there is a lifelong covenant of fidelity to one another. It cannot thrive in any other environment. It cannot be experienced in any other environment. So how horrifically twisted then are sexual encounters outside of that bond? Well, if we're thinking rightly, this brings us to our knees in repentant commitment to the Lord's holy call upon our lives. There may be few areas, perhaps this is at the top, where we recognize how far short we fall of the glory of God as a people. But we see in this council the direction and how to think about these areas. We must think rightly about our bodies and our relationship in salvation to Christ and what it means. That leads then, secondly, that we must respond faithfully with our bodies. That's obvious here, but he now draws that to the point where, where he's been headed all along. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. He's going to describe here the reason, and that is because our bodies are temples in which the Holy Spirit resides. I'll say that down in verse 19, but flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. A couple thoughts here. The fleeing in the original text is a fleeing that is continual. So keep on fleeing sexual immorality. It's not the kind of imperative that says, do this once and you're good. But it's this is an ongoing challenge to flee sexual immorality. It's a habitual way of life. We cannot flirt with sexual temptation. We cannot dabble in sexual immorality. We must keep purposefully fleeing it with resolve and discipline. We must keep yanking the noxious weeds of lust from our hearts. That's the call. Now, verse 18, every sin a person commits outside the body, but sexually immoral person sins against his own body. The meaning of this phrase is really challenging. Paul may quote another slogan the Corinthians used to justify their promiscuity, but I would tentatively lean toward the idea that sexual immorality is uniquely damaging a violation of the body that Christ has redeemed. These words are a reason to avoid sexual sin at any cost. They're not, however, a reason to despair. When you look at this, it's serious. Paul takes it seriously. Sexual immorality is a sin against your body. It's a sin of infidelity to the Lord, but it is not a reason for us to despair. We must place over all of this, verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. It's not on the basis of our performance, ultimately, but on the work that Christ has done. And we need to take hope in that where there is conviction, where there is shame as we consider our past. Such were some of you. 
So in verses 19 and 20, Paul provides theological support for this call to flee sexual immorality. Verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So our bodies are temples in which the Holy Spirit resides. Normally, temple imagery is reserved for a, in a corporate sense for the church. But here, what is true of the church, he says, is in a sense true of the individual. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple in Jerusalem housed, as we know, God's presence. It was a pavilion in which God chose to reside among His people. But now the Holy Spirit tabernacles in our bodies as believers. So go back in time. Picture in your mind the best you can do of the holy of holies in the temple. That inner sanctum circled about by degrees of separation. Only the priests, the Levitical priests, allowed into that close area. The Aaronic priests into the temple building itself. And then that inner sanctum where only the high priest could enter one day a year on the Day of Atonement and with great ritual preparation as he presented the nation before the very presence of God behind that veil in the Holy of Holies. Everything that Israel did on that Day of Atonement, the whole nation fasting and seeking God, and the priests coming out, coming into the temple courts, into the building, into that inner sanctum behind the veil, everybody collectively, in a sense, held their breath. Will God receive our atonement? This whole day given to this approach... It is utterly abhorrent to imagine that high priest entering with a prostitute into that room. It is utterly abhorrent to imagine him entering there with a smartphone displaying sexually explicit images. It would make a shudder. Obviously, they didn't have them. But you know what I'm saying. Our bodies are the temple of God. And what we do takes place, in a sense, in that inner sanctum. So Paul says, when you cohabit with a prostitute, you do so in the presence of the Holy Spirit who indwells your body. And a question I ask of myself and I ask of you is, how at home in your soul is the Holy Spirit? How at home is He there? What thoughts run through your mind? What considerations are taking place? What activities are you involved in? How at home is the Holy Spirit in you? If you know Christ as your Savior, your body is His temple. It is a convicting thought to every one of us. What behaviors are we pursuing for pleasure? What you do with your body matters. It matters to God and it should matter to us. And the truth is, as we see here, you're not your own. The end of verse 19. As true Christians, we gladly accept that I have no right over my body. 
I am not free to do with my body or to view it however I want because it's mine. It's not mine. It's been purchased by Christ's blood. It belongs to Him. We must respond faithfully with our bodies, fleeing sexual immorality. One, because our bodies are temples in which the Holy Spirit resides. And secondly, because Jesus redeemed our bodies when He died for our sins. Verse 20, For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. The imagery here is of a slave market. The past tense links well to the past tense of verse 11. This is who you were, but you have been. You were washed, sanctified, justified. And so it is here. You were bought with a price. So the point of the whole passage then is to glorify God in your body. Now if your translation has added the phrase and in your spirit which are God's, um, I, it's okay if you just cross it out. It, it was added. And the problem with that addition, if your translation adds that phrase, is that it messes up everything Paul's saying. In fact, I think it evidences the influence of some sort of dualism that has yet today an influence on translators. It's not there. What he's saying is this. Glorify God in your body. Now, obviously, we should glorify God in our spirit. But Paul's whole point here is that your body belongs to God. So glorify Him in your body. They were given to us so that with them we would honor Him who indwells us by His Spirit. Well, we just take the text of Scripture as it comes. (laughs) And here we are. Uh, We have faced it, I hope, honestly here today. But we can say this, certainly, on the authority of this passage. Christian, your sex life is God's business. It is. And what is more, and I say this with right qualification, but our sex lives are the business of the church as well. That's what Paul is demonstrating here in part. Your political affiliation is not the business of the church. Your favorite ice cream flavor is not the business of the church. Your occupation, as long as it's legal and proper, is not the concern of the church. Nor is your, the house you live in, the car you drive, how your kids are schooled, or a million other things. We speak about these things in generalities because we are to bring glory to God in every area of our lives. So there's nothing we leave off and say, that's no one's business but mine. But that being said, that's not the business of the church. To say, you must have this occupation. You must go to this school. You must like this ice cream. No. But by contrast, our sex lives are the business of the church. Not in an invasive way, not in an inappropriate way, not in seeking details that are meant to be private within a faithful relationship. No. But in an ethical sense, yes. Our world insists with spitting intensity that one's sex life is no one else's business. As long as there is mutual consent, as long as no one is coerced or controlled or taken advantage of, then one's sex life is private and one's sexual identification a matter of sovereign self-determination. 
That's the world in which we live. But let us affirm as a church that the state is not Lord of our lives. We owe it respect and obedience. It is not the Lord. What we feel and what we want, what, where we find pleasure, is not the Lord of our lives. Christ is the Lord of our lives. He is the owner of our bodies. And it is given, our bodies are given to us as a stewardship from Him. So embracing a biblical ethic then, we will not torture the body into submission, nor do we indulge its desires on the other hand. A biblical ethic starts with seeing the body the right way. It was made good. It is a gift from our good Creator. It starts with understanding His future promises. In Christ, the body has been marked for resurrection. When it will be glorified and become all that God ever meant for it to be. And then from that point, we move forward learning to bring the body's passions in subjection to the indwelling Holy Spirit. And thus, in progressive sanctification, we learn to conform the body to God's design. We learn to bring it under control of the indwelling Spirit of God. Not by torturing it, not by ignoring or indulging it but by walking in fellowship with Christ to do what He calls us to do in obedience. Now this journey will be for many of us a lifelong endeavor. Sometimes even a discouraging endeavor. But as we learn to conform our bodies to God's design, we practice being who we are becoming, not who we once were. And again, in this area how easily we see how far short we fall. And I know I may speak to some where you say, I feel no hope. I feel no sense that this bondage has been broken. The key is not to look within. The key is to look up and to look long. If you know Christ as your Savior through faith in His death in your place, knowing that He did indeed wash away your sins, sanctify you and justify you on the authority of what Christ has done, if you have been born again through trust in that message, He is at work in you. Little by little, day by day, on the long haul, He is progressively transforming you and sanctifying you. You are becoming someone you aren't yet. This is what we know on the authority of what He has revealed. And so this needs to be seen not as a matter merely of spiritual discipline or physical discipline, but rather a matter of faith and trust in what Christ has accomplished. He hasn't touched most of our lives and left other things alone. He's touched it all. He is transforming us to bring us into line with His creative purpose and will. We are not who 
we once were. We are becoming new in Christ. And this for the glory of God and for the genuine joy of our souls. Let's bow in dependence. Lord, as we come before this table, we here acknowledge that we are not standing at the table of the world. We're not communing with what turns on this world and with how it sees itself and how it views this, the gifts that are ours physically. We come as followers of Christ. I pray for those who struggle. There may be some who are hearing this message who are in bondage to sexual immorality. It defines their life. It has controls upon them. They're caught in a web. I plead that you would help them to not despair, but to turn the despair they find in themselves and their practices over to Christ and His saving grace. I pray for those who are separated from that grace, for those who have it but are struggling to walk in faithfulness. I pray for every one of us for whom a fall is always possible in some way or other. God, I plead that wherever this message finds us, that we will seek you in fidelity, that we will be learning to bring our bodies into submission to your Lordship. Continue to guide us here, direct us here, sanctify us and use us. And here at this table, May we come in humility and thanksgiving for the forgiveness that is ours in Christ, in whose name we pray.